Open your Bibles, if you have them, to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 to 20 is where we're going to be this morning. Colossians 1, 13 to 20. I, uh, I remember it was, it was Easter Sunday, and it was about roughly 10 years ago, I think. Andrea and I were looking for a church at the time. And on this particular Easter Sunday, we came to this mega church near our town. Huge church. This church was known for, you know, its, its cutting-edge graphics. It was kind of this over-the-top presentation normally. There was one time where they lowered the pastor in from the rafters on a harness. I'm not kidding. They really did. <laughs> We're still trying to install the thing up here. Um, uh, <laughs> World-class music it was all unparalleled. It was, it was great. When we walked in, we sat down. They had a countdown timer on the screen. It was ticking away. And as soon as the clock hit zero, the entire auditorium went completely dark. That's right. And then all of a sudden, on the screens, the, there was this bright sun that showed on the screen, lit up the entire auditorium. And almost simultaneously, the band and the worship leader come in. Here comes the sun, do, 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 do. The Beatles. Now, of course, on the screen, as the lyrics popped up, they had corrected George Harrison's typo in the original song. And change the, here comes the sun, S-U-N, to here comes the sun, S-O-N, of course. I think that's what George Harrison really meant, right? <laughs> when he wrote the song, it was an Easter song. We didn't know it this whole time. <laughs> now we laugh, but right now as we speak, there are churches all over the U.S., all over the world, filled to max capacity in their congregations, they have professional musicians, which is not a bad thing. They have unbelievable facilities. Maybe a smoke machine or two. And beside, besides the occasional repurposing of a Beatles song, most of the songs that are sung are praise songs that are filled with nothing but descriptions of how Jesus makes me feel. Or maybe idly repeating ad nauseum the same word over and over and over again. Now, the question that we really need to answer and get on the same page as we answer this question is what's wrong with that? Is there anything wrong with that? Altogether, when we think about all of those things put together, maybe individually there's nothing wrong with each one of those things. But together, what's wrong with that picture? As I continue to meet with people around our church on a weekly basis, on a daily basis, I sense there's an overall positive air about them. And it seems like we're all thinking about the possibilities of how God could use Emmanuel Baptist Church on into the future. Last week we talked about at length what we're going to do going forward. 
how we're going to shift the conversation. And today, with that theme in mind of thinking forward, we're going to look at this question. What kind of church are we going to be? When people around the community of Tuscaloosa mention Emmanuel Baptist Church in the future, how are they going to think about us as a congregation? How are they going to think about us as a church? This series that I've called Heavenly Minded. We've defined heavenly minded, no doubt, imperfectly as having one's mind governed entirely by the attitudes and affections of the very Spirit of God. This is defining for us who we should be as a people. We should be as a people, heavenly minded people. And we're going to expound on that a little bit more today. And in the text this morning, the Apostle Paul is going to set before us the supremacy of Christ in all things. And as we look at it, I want us to understand it both as a right understanding of Christ. This is who Christ really is. This is a right understanding, a right belief of Christ. But then second, a vision for Emmanuel Baptist Church going on into the future. Now to be clear, there's going to be some deeper, more complex theological terms that Paul's going to use that we're going to have to break down. That help us define who this Christ is that he's actually showing us. And how it defines for us what our future should look like. Let's look at Colossians 1, 13 to 20. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on, heaven, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross." Now, in this passage, I want us to see three broad points that Paul is making as we move through this text, all of which point to the supremacy of Christ. First, we are citizens of Christ's kingdom. We are citizens of Christ's kingdom. Look at what he says. So let's go back to verse 12 and include 12 with 13 and 14. He says, "...giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light." He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. In Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So the first thing that Paul does in this section is he defines what has happened to the Christian as a result of Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Namely, that the Christian has been given citizenship in an entirely new kingdom. That we don't belong to the old kingdom anymore. And if you look in verse 12, we've been, one, given an inheritance. In verse 13, He has delivered us. In verse 14, He has redeemed us. So you have these three big concepts in these three consecutive verses. Inheritance, deliverance, and redemption. And that language that Paul is using here harkens back 
to the Exodus account of Israel's deliverance from Pharaoh's hand out of Egypt. Moses tells that story in Exodus 6, 6 to 8 like this. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with great acts of judgment. I will take, to, take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, I will give it uh, to you for a possession or inheritance. I am the Lord. Here also, Moses uses these same themes of deliverance, redemption, and inheritance. In fact, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, which Paul often used, he uses those same terms that Paul uses in Colossians. For deliverance, redemption, and inheritance. So it's likely that as Paul talks about what we have in Christ, ringing in his ears is the image of the children of Israel being taken out of the land of Egypt and into the promised land. And all that is to say that when we think of our newly granted citizenship that we have in Christ, we aren't to only imagine that in spiritual terms. This is a spiritual and physical reality that has taken place. If you're a Christian, then as you sit in this building right at this very moment, your body and soul are sworn to a new king. You have a new law that you adhere to. You are surrounded by fellow citizens that are called to you as brothers and sisters that relate to one another as family. It's an already present reality. You are citizens of Christ's kingdom. Now pay attention to verse 13 there. He says, He has delivered us. That's past tense. It's an already present reality that He has done this. And how has He done it? Through the forgiveness of sins. But there's also a sense in which this hasn't fully taken place yet. There's a sense in which we have not fully been delivered yet, fully been redeemed. Christ's kingdom has yet to fully eradicate evil and sin and the people that embody evil and sin. So we're still living in this world technically as citizens of another nation. Most of our passports would say something like United States of America or perhaps another country on them. All of us would have citizenship of some country around this world. So while it's true that our citizenship has been transferred over to a heavenly citizenship, the kingdom of Christ, you and I are still in a far country. And while we're here, we have been made Christ's ambassadors to the world around us in this far country. We're not trying to make Jesus king. Jesus is already king. We are his ambassadors in the far country. We're not going around trying to curry votes in his favor. 
That if enough of you get on board, then maybe one day Jesus will be king. That's not what we're trying to do. We're not campaign volunteers. We don't have a button that says, Jesus for president. We're ambassadors of a king who is already on the throne. Of a king who is already ruling. So when you think about this present reality, it really changes a couple of things. Now, there's lots of things that we could consider here, but let's, let's talk just about a couple first. First, the laws of this land impact me in as much as they don't interfere with my citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. The laws of this land impact me in as much as they don't interfere with my allegiance to Christ. At the moment where I am asked to fudge on my citizenship, what's really happening is that I'm committing treason against the, the king that I'm sworn allegiance to. This changes the concept of sin altogether for us. Anytime that we're asked to participate in the deeds of darkness, whether it be enslaved to the images that we find on the screen of the internet, when I choose to take part in the lust of the flesh, I'm betraying the king that I've sworn my allegiance to. Amen. When I gossip, when I change someone's opinion of someone else because of a conversation that they weren't a part of originally and destroy and defame their character, I'm taking part in the deeds of darkness. All sin is subsumed under this principle that I am a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And any sin that I choose to partake in is high treason against the king. Not to mention fear of man. Look, we're getting into a day in this world, in this country, where we are going to be persecuted. Some people are already experiencing it to a great degree, and it's, it's coming for us all a fear. And there will be a day where we will be tempted, not just with gossip, not just with internet pornography or a number of other sins, but with the fear of man to compromise my citizenship in the kingdom of heaven in favor of animos or, uh, 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 anonymity, of not being known, not making myself known as a Christian. The law of the far country can and will have an impact on my body. We're promised that. But we're not to fear them. We're to fear Him who has authority over body and soul. The second thing that I think is, is this changes about the way we think is that Emmanuel Baptist Church, this collection of citizens of the kingdom of heaven, Emmanuel Baptist Church is an embassy of the kingdom of heaven. We are an embassy of the kingdom of heaven. It's a gathering of heavenly citizens. And this impacts how we understand things like church membership. A member of this embassy is someone who is already a credentialed citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Who is coming under the leadership of this embassy. So if you present your name for membership in our church, then we are right to ask you some questions about your credentials, about your passport. Who do you say that Jesus is? What is the gospel message? What do you believe about God? Membership is reserved for those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Amen. 
And to the best of our ability, what we seek to foster here is a community of citizens who represent the name of Christ in the surrounding communities. And that's what we're called to be as a church. So that means that as we submit to Christ as King, we're both showing a lost world daily that we serve Christ first and foremost. And then we're coming together to receive teaching from His Word, from God's Word regularly. We're submitting to its authority in our life. So you can surely see how being heavenly minded means that we're living as though we're citizens of another kingdom. At its base, that's what it means. Because we are citizens of a new kingdom. And that has has tremendous implications on our lives in the here and now. Second, Christ is king over all creation. Christ is king over all creation. Stick with me through verses 15 and 16 on to the end because this this is where Paul starts to get really deep in terms of theology. So we need to break down. What is this Christ that he's talking about? So stick with me through these two points. Start with verse 15 here. Look with me there. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now that second phrase, the firstborn of all creation, there has certainly been no shortage of heresy that has been created Because of that phrase right there, the firstborn of all creation. So Mormons will tell you that Jesus was the physical offspring of God, the Father, and one of his heavenly wives. Jehovah's Witnesses will claim that this verse proves that Jesus was the first created being. Right? It says firstborn of all creation right there, doesn't it? So they would say this is proof that Jesus is the first created being. And there are, I'm sure, a myriad of other heresies that have been spawned based on this verse. And to be sure, what we're saying when we say heresy and heretic is a deviation from the traditional orthodox view of Christ. All right? The traditional orthodox teaching of the church. So a heretic would be someone who is is misleading or misguiding or leading people astray from the orthodox teaching of Christ. What has been believed everywhere, always, and by all. They're doing it intentionally and in unrepentant sin. So what we're saying about a heretic is that if they don't repent of their sin and begin teaching rightly, they will be in hell. So this is not a term that we just throw around. It's a very serious charge that we're rendering on somebody. But I think the Mormon and Jehovah's Witness doctrine, uh, uh, particularly in regards to this verse, would certainly qualify as unorthodox and heretical. Paul, though, is not referring to Christ's physical birth at all. See, to be the firstborn means that you're preeminent. means that you have power and authority over all that the Father has. It's yours you are the firstborn. It is all yours. So this not, mean, this not only means that you have the whole estate in your control, but that you are over, you are exalted over the entire estate. The prophecy about Christ in Psalm 89 puts it this way. Uh, I will, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Jacob says in Genesis about his literal firstborn, Reuben. He says in Genesis 49, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength. 
preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. So certainly, it, uh, first, the term firstborn often does mean you're the first to be born of a couple. But in Jesus' case, that's not what Paul is referring to. He's using metaphorical language here to depict Christ's preeminence. And what is he firstborn over? All of creation. In fact, if you look at verses 15 to 17 in a, and just kind of look at it in a broad brush, all of creation is in view in verses 15 to 17. And that'll change in verse 18. We'll talk about that in a minute. But in verses 15 to 17, all creation is in view here. For these three verses, we're looking at Jesus being the preeminent king over all of creation, that he has authority over all of creation. So Paul has already told us that we are citizens of a new kingdom, and now he's establishing the borders of this kingdom. How far does Christ's kingdom extend? All of creation. That's how he answers it. How far do the borders extend? All creation. Well, when you say all creation... Now, what do, you, what do you mean when you say all creation? Certainly you don't mean all creation, do you? All, all creation? That kind of all creation? Well, he answers that in 16 and 17. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I count five things. That Paul says he means here when he says Jesus is over all creation. So in verse 16 we see, in him all things were created. Now some of you in your translations may have, by him all things were created. The word is literally, in him all things were created. Now what, what's happening there in some of your translations is they change it to by to try to get at the meaning of the text. What Paul means there is, is by, and it's certainly debatable, but I think what he actually means is in in Christ, all things were created. And, and what that means is that all things were created in Christ's realm. That he has the power and authority over all things. There's nothing that he can't touch. This is why then Paul goes in and mentions four th- uh, uh, these two things, these two realms. He mentions them four times. If you look there, he says, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All of these are ways of saying the same two groups of people. Powers that you can physically see and powers that you can't see that belong to another realm. Whether angels and demons or President Trump, Angela Merkel, Vladimir Putin, people that you can actually see. Nothing is outside of his realm. In him... All things were created. But more than that, all things are created through Him. So it's not merely that all things were created in His realm, but that all things were created through Him. He is the agent through which God the Father created the world. John 1.3 says the same thing. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Creation was a Trinitarian effort. The picture of God here is the Father speaking and the Son doing. 
the work of creation. Through Him, all things were created. But more than that, all things were created for Him. So in Him, through Him, and for Him. So imagine that picture. There is nothing in this world that has been created simply for my own enjoyment. Nothing. Now in this world, it's easy to get self-centered. To start thinking things are about me. Particularly in America. But there is nothing in this world that is ultimately for me. Everything. From the Grand Canyon and Mount Everest to the smallest microbe in the depths of the sea. All things were created for Him. It's all His. He is merely allowing us to glimpse it. But if that's not enough, verse 17, he is before all things, meaning he is eternal, I think. And in him, all things hold together. So Paul is establishing the dominion of Christ over all creation. So we have to ask, how far are its borders? How far is the borders of the kingdom of Christ? Well, he says everything you can see. Also, everything you can't see. Everything that's held together. Everything that isn't eternal. Everything that ever came into being is all His. It's all held together by Him. He's holding it together. That isn't your oxygen going into your lungs. It's His. Those aren't your lungs. They're His. Those aren't your nostrils or your mouth that's taking in that air. It's His. That isn't your life. It's His. The very fact that you're breathing is a testament to His grace. The oxygen in the air is on loan to you. All things are His. And He has the authority to repossess them at any time He wants. We aren't owners of anything. We are only managers of His resources. The very fact that you're breathing His air means that you should return praise and thanksgiving to the One who gave it to you. Understand, brothers and sisters... This is the message that we in the church are proclaiming to the outside world. That Jesus isn't running for king. That's not only Christians that are breathing Christian air. That's non-Christians as well. They're breathing air that's on loan to them as well. That's His too. Their lungs are His too. He is already king even over them. And either people will bow the knee to Him now willingly, which I would recommend, or they will out of compulsion later, but one way or another, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, whether rulers or authorities or thrones or dominions or auto mechanics or doctors or lawyers or teachers, stay-at-home moms, presidents or kings, And every tongue will confess that He is Lord to the glory of the Father. It's a foregone conclusion because He owns it all. It's all His. Everything is held together by Him. Christ is King over all 
creation and we as his church have a responsibility to exemplify to the people of the world how we operate as a church, particularly in our worship. We're not here for therapy. We are here to honor a king who owns it all and hear from him in his word so that he can change our lives because God does the work through his word. Third, Christ is king over his new creation. Christ is king over his new creation. Look with me there at verses 18 and following. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So what sort of Christ is this that we're looking at here? Well, in verse 19... Paul sets the record straight as to the nature of Christ. Look with me there. And in, 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 in look back, actually, sorry, in verse 15 first. Back in verse 15, he calls him the image of the invisible God. The exact imprint of God himself. He is the exact imprint of God himself. Now, you and I are made in the image of God. Jesus is the image of God that we're made in. So in other words, not only is he the exact imprint of God in the flesh, but there never was a time when he was not. He is eternal if he is the exact imprint of God. He is eternal. Now, this is why Jesus can say, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He and the Father are one in the same essence Two persons, one essence. Now, there's two reasons why I think this is important to clarify here. The first is when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one essence. When it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, most Christians will say, (laughs) when asked about the Trinity. The funny thing about that doctrine of the Trinity is it's both simple and complex. The simplicity of it is that in church history, it's been a really short definition for what the Trinity is. Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. That's really all saying the same thing. He's God from God. Begotten, not made. And of the same essence as the Father. So when you hear that word essence, think of that intrinsic characteristic about something that gives it its character. That intrinsic thing about something that gives it its nature and character. You tracking with me? Yes? Yes. So what we're saying about the three persons in the Trinity is that they are three distinct persons, but all share one essence. God has one essence amongst three persons. Now, the other reason that I I think it's worth clarifying here or stopping for just a minute to clarify 
is because when we don't fully understand something, and the Trinity, we can't fully wrap our mind around. When we don't fully understand something, what we tend to do is come up with analogies. So we, think, think, we say things like, well, the Trinity is like a three-leaf clover, right? This is a good this is an analogy that's often used. The Trinity is like a three-leaf clover. But that isn't true. When you hold up one petal of, or one leaf of the three-leaf clover, you can't say, in this petal, the fullness of the clover dwells, can you? Like we just said of Christ. Well, that isn't what we believe about Christ at all. That's only part of the clover. If you just have the petal, you don't have the whole clover. But in him, the fullness of the deity dwells. Oh, I know. H2O. There's another explanation that we usually have for it. H2O. You have liquid, ice, and steam or vapor, right? But the problem is you don't have those three all at the same time, do you? No. No. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all three exist at the same time. H2O isn't what we believe about the Godhead. Truth be told, there is three distinct persons in the Godhead at the same time with one essence. So in truth, there is really no analogy for this reality because it doesn't happen anywhere else. It is unique to the Godhead alone. So anything more than that or short of that is heresy. So what Paul is saying about Christ here, that God has, through Him, made a new creation, the church, of which Christ is the head. And, and, And that it's through Jesus that this creation will be reconciled to God. So we must come to terms with the fact that without Christ, we are alienated from God. We are hostile in mind, going about evil deeds, as Paul will tell us in the next verse. It's because of our, our sin. There is no way to repair that relationship with God. We are separated and hostile. It puts us squarely under the judgment of God, and rightfully so. But the unique characteristic that we find in Christ is that He is fully God, fully man, so that He can come down and live a perfect life and die the penalty of man. He has to be fully God. He has to be fully man so that He could accomplish the task. And on the cross of Christ, He absorbs the wrath of God for us on our behalf so that we don't have to face His punishment by faith in Christ. By this, Jesus made peace through the blood of His cross. This is the gospel message. But the best part of this new creation that Jesus is making through His cross, Paul calls Him there the firstborn of the dead. Meaning that Jesus, after he died, didn't stay dead. And because he resurrected from the dead, we're anticipating a resurrection harvest of people. For those that have died and gone before us, there will come a day where Jesus will return to the sound of trumpets and there will be none left dead. Those who are dead in Christ will be resurrected to newness of life. Those who are alive will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye also. 
the dead without Christ will be resurrected into eternal death. It's only by faith in Him, repentance of sin, faith in Christ, that we have eternal life. But make no mistake about it. All will reckon with the fact that Christ is king over his new creation as well. So if you thought in death that you could escape Christ's rule and reign, I have news for you. New creation, that's ruled by him too. But church, dwell on this for a moment. Think about this for just a second. Why did God do this? It's there in verse 18. Look at what he says. That in everything Christ might be preeminent. So whether in the creation of the universe or in the new creation, uh, he is making in the church so that Christ is preeminent over all things. That he is supreme over all things. This is what it truly means to be heavenly minded. To have our minds set on the supremacy of Christ in all things. That, that means everything. That means everything from the way we raise our children. To the money in our bank account. That's all His too. We are simply stewards of His gift. And if we truly believe in the supremacy of Christ, then it changes the way we interact with our children. We're not simply raising our kids so that they'll fit in. We're raising our children to be Christ followers. Amen. We can't guarantee that. Only the Lord can do that. But we're to set a pattern for them putting Christ as supreme in our own life. All things are His. Let's go back to our definition. To have our minds governed by the attitudes and affections of the very Spirit of God. Let me ask you this. To whom are the affections of the very Spirit of God directed? Answer that question. To whom are the, very, are the, are the uh, affections of the very Spirit of God directed? Are they primarily toward you? No. They're primarily toward Christ. You receive the love and affection of God because you are in Christ. But they're primarily... His affections are primarily directed toward Christ. So that Christ is supreme in all things. So if we are governed by that same affection, then where are our affections directed? Toward Christ. Christ is supreme in all things. He's not preeminent only on Sunday morning inside this building. He has authority outside the building as well. When we go home, in our lives at home, as I said, in the way we raise our kids, in the way we manage our finances... That in everything, everything, every way we live our lives, to so the way we function at work and the way we talk with our coworkers, everything, He is preeminent. Now, there's certainly a lot of things that could be considered at this moment in our personal lives, but I want to take a moment to just direct this straight at our church. 
how we are going to think about our time together going forward. As I said from the beginning, there's a growing number of churches that I think are missing it. I think they're missing the point of gathering together. We exist to make the supremacy of Christ known in all the world. We exist to make the supremacy of Christ known in all the world. That's the heart of what we're going for. There's nothing wrong with singing good songs. There's nothing wrong with playing our instruments well. But we must understand what we're aiming for. What is the target that we're aiming for? We want to attract people with the gospel through the way we lead our lives. Not attract people and then kind of surreptitiously sneak in the gospel underneath it. We want to attract them with the, with the gospel that we proclaim and the way that we live our lives so that it's compelling. And any changes that come or additions that come need to be made toward that end of proclaiming the supremacy of Christ in the world. So in our worship services, can we strive toward helping people to focus more fully on Christ and removing distraction? Of course we can. When we're here, are we as a people more concerned with what we're getting out of this? Is it more of a therapy session for us? Or are we coming together to exalt Christ because He alone is worthy of our worship? Because if we're really concerned with being wowed by captivating entertainment, then we're never going to be people that magnify the name of Christ in the community around us. It's not going to happen. Each and every one of us must come every Sunday morning and throughout the week, setting our hearts and minds on the only one worthy of our affection. This is what a quiet time is. When we first described that to the church, have your morning quiet time. All that really is, is stirring our hearts' affections towards Christ early in the morning. That's all that is. That's what we're advocating for here as well as a corporate body. Our priority should be to lift high the name of Jesus since He alone is worthy of worship. To open His Word. To read it. Ask, what does it really say? And let him speak to us, since he is the head of the church, since he is the one that has authority. And to proclaim the name of Jesus in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods so that people can hear the gospel. These seem to be the priorities that we're given in Scripture. So in all that we do going forward, may this be the current that carries us. The supremacy of Christ in all things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for the gift of salvation that you have given to us graciously and mercifully. Father, we know it's nothing that we deserve. You have graciously bestowed upon us your love through Christ. We thank you for pulling to yourself a people finding them in Christ so that through the blood of the cross we can be reconciled to you. Gratitude does not begin to express what we feel. I pray, Lord, for this body of believers 
that going forward, we will seek to magnify Christ above all else. That we will desire earnestly to proclaim him to the nations. And that, that starts with our next door neighbors and our coworkers. That we will seek not only in the way that we live, but in the words that we say. To help them understand that we are in the service of a king who really is king over all. We're grateful, Lord, for all that you have done and all that you are going to do. In Jesus' name, amen.